Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. In summer of 2019 to 2020, Australia experienced grief and loss on a national scale. It was one of the most catastrophic bushfire seasons in history, resulting in the loss of 33 people, 3 billion animals and 24 million hectares of land. In my new season of Not So Linear, I speak with Ray Law from one of the worst hit regions in New South Wales. I was curious to ask him what life was like during those months and to my surprise, I learned of the sheer negligence that the community experienced and how the volunteer firefighters who worked relentlessly didn't feel heard by those in power. I also wanted to explore how that traumatic season impacted the community, their mental health and their ability to rebuild their lives again. And I couldn't help but wonder, what was it that got them through their toughest time in history? Ray, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you're more than welcome. Thank you for talking to me. It's great to be here. Well, maybe you could take us back to the time of 2019 when the bushfires began. And what was it like? Can you remember that time when it first began? Oh, look, I can remember it vividly. The fires had been burning away from us for quite some time. And the local fire volunteers, the people that I call the experts, the, the men and women who jump on the trucks on the end of the hoses, who know this area like the back of their hand, had been telling us that if it gets into the gorge, we won't be able to stop it. And unfortunately, it wasn't stopped when it could have been very early in the piece, and it burned its way through until just before Christmas, and it got uh, up towards our our shire, and we weren't getting any information at all from uh, any of the government agencies. And so with the help of our local member, um, Nathaniel Smith, I called a meeting, a public meeting at our local church, and we had 600 people turn up, all very worried about what the future held, all worried about where they were. Now, at that meeting, the staff, not the volunteers, but the staff from the RFS and an inspector from Fire and Rescue assured us there was no risk. The fire wouldn't come through Tobago. There was no way it was going to come out through Balmoral or Buxton. All the locals were telling us the opposite, the guys who had been there before and done it all before. In fact, they were even telling me that day when the fire would come out of the bush and exactly where it would come out. Now, this was in contradiction to what the professionals were telling us. Within 16 hours of that meeting, the fire had done exactly what our volunteers told us it would do. It had come out where they said it would come out. They were within half an hour of the timing. It then proceeded to run through the northern areas of Bargo towards Tarmor, took out about four houses and later that night impacted on both Buxton and Balmoral and further houses were lost. And very sadly, that was the night that we lost two of our volunteer firefighters in a horrific track accident when a burning tree fell on them. Now, look, it, it was one of those situations where the people who've lived here a long time, we've been here um, nearly 40 years, we've seen fires in this area before, 
we have the absolute confidence in our local volunteers, our local captains and our group captains, and they knew exactly what was going to happen. And yet RFS in Homebush refused to listen to them, refused to take the local expertise into consideration. They were relying on computer modelling, which has never worked, especially in this area. There is a very strong belief here that had those that really know the area being listened to, a lot of this tragedy could have been averted. It's so sad to think, isn't it? But what it goes to show is that your people, your community really understand the place that they live in. And it was I could tell that straight away when I, I met the firefighters at the dinner. I could tell how much they really care about the place that they live and, you know, the people that are part of their life there. So I'm really interested to know, and it sounds like, to be honest, there were there was no preparation from the government. There was no one there to help you and support you through that tough time. That, that's exactly correct. And in fact, um, one of the local brigades uh, at Balmoral, in fact, one of the villages that was impacted on the same night and also on the following Saturday, their captain was actually down at the meeting with some of his brigade members trying to get some answers. And he was told then by an inspector from uh, New South Wales Fire and Rescue that they were putting a hazard reduction in at his village that night without him um, being the local captain having any knowledge of it. And he was horrified because he knew it was in the wrong spot at the wrong time. He knew it was too late. He'd been asking to get a hazard reduction in for some months earlier and was told there was no risk. And unfortunately, that night he was proven to be 100% correct. And for the first of two occasions, the fire impacted on Balmoral and burned out uh, a large area there and a few, quite a few people lost their homes. The government really, as far as I'm concerned, has got a lot to learn in bushfire control. Uh, I'm not a firefighter. I never have been. But I have a lot of contact with our, our captains and some of our group captains. And they've been telling me for probably 30 years, that our hazard reductions have been neglected. A large area of what is now National Parks used to be controlled by what was the old Sydney Water Board. They had crews dedicated to just keeping fire trails clear. They had um, graders and rollers and front-end loaders and trucks and all the gear, and they would spend their time in the bush making sure the fire trails uh, were kept open, making sure that the hazard was reduced and the fuel levels were low. When the water board as such was disbanded and responsibility was handed over to national parks, I'm not quite sure why, whether it was partly their policy, whether they just didn't have enough crew. But the hazard reduction was let go. The fuel built up to dangerous levels and the fire trails, the only access in and out of these areas for our firefighting crews, were neglected to the point, I believe, of criminal negligence. And in fact, some of them were deliberately blocked off with logs and boulders. When the fires started to come, there was a bit of a panic to get earth moving equipment in there in the face of the fire and clear these, these trails again. But it was all too late. And uh, some years ago, one of our group captains was telling me, he said, anything up to about five tonne of fuel on the ground per hectare we can manage. If it gets above that, it struggles. If it gets to about 20 tonne per hectare, we've totally lost it. And he was telling me then that there was up to 40 tonne of fuel per hectare on the ground in the bush. And he told me then 
this will be a disaster if it catches. We won't be able to stop it. Sounds like you were completely dismissed that the local people were just not listened to. And, you know, you mentioned before that so many people or homes were devastated. It was such a traumatic time for the people living there. What was it like? Could you tell me a bit more about how everybody dealt with it and what kind of things were lost? Well, and unfortunately, there was about 40 homes, I think, between Balmoral, Buxton and Bargo that were completely lost. The thing that I've tried to express to some of our supposed experts is these just aren't buildings. These are people's lives. People have lost memories. They've lost memorabilia of their children growing up. They've lost sporting trophies that their children won. They've lost photos of christenings and first communions. They've lost wedding certificates and death certificates and birth certificates. And some of those things can be replaced, but a lot of them can't. And to make matters worse, the financial strain has been horrendous. Even those who were fully insured, when they've gone to rebuild, have discovered that the fire or the bushfire attack levels, what we call the bell levels of their homes, have been raised to the point that even though they were fully insured, the money that they were receiving would not build an equivalent home to those new bushfire ratings. And so people suddenly found that even though they'd done the right thing and had the insurance, they still didn't have enough money to rebuild their homes. On top of that, there has been a huge amount of difficulty imposed on some people, unfortunately, by local councils who have made life absolutely difficult. And there's quite a few people out here who are still not in their homes or if they are in their homes, have done so with great difficulty and with great obstacles being placed in their way, which should never have happened. No, not at all, especially when you've had to go through something like this and have to wait over a year or so to be able to be rehoused. It must have had a really tough like impact on their mental health as well. Do you feel that that happened in the community? Oh, look, there's absolutely no doubt about it. I know I'm dealing with a few families that... Uh, in an unofficial capacity, just as a, an interested bystander, I guess, long-standing community member. I have a family in one of our villages here who actually watched their house go up in smoke and stood there at a distance and watched everything they owned other than the clothes they wore and the vehicle that they had escaped in being reduced to ashes. Now, 12 months later, they were still trying to get back into the new house that they had managed to build but there was so much red tape there was so much difficulty there were so many difficulties placed in their way unnecessarily and i believe by overzealous officials and the the strain on this family has been immense it has been palpable it, it is obvious in when you talk to them they are still at this point you know coming up to 18 months later still being reduced to a point of tears with the stress that they are under because of what's been done to them. I can't even begin to imagine what that must feel like. And and what's more is when this all ended, then we had a brand new pandemic take course. And did you feel that coronavirus kind of took the government's attention away from you and that you were almost left to fight this yourself? Look, to be honest with you, I don't think the coronavirus made any difference. I don't think the government's attention was ever on us. I don't think it was there to be taken away. To be to be quite frank, there were some platitudes made, there was a little bit of money splashed around here and there. But by and large, the people who were affected were left to their own devices and with a lot of support from the local community 
And, you know, one of the wonderful things about living where we do is that we just have a beautiful community who will rally around. And people did all they could do. People were trying to help out with accommodation, trying to help out with food, trying to help out with clothing, just trying to make it. So, And, and bearing in mind that this is about a week and a half before Christmas. And so even Christmas presents, which had been purchased and put away, were lost, all those sorts of things. So it was just a really, really bleak time. And I honestly don't think that the coronavirus made that much difference because I don't think the government at any level, state, federal or local, was focused in anywhere near where they should have been. And I think, you know, quite honestly, uh, especially at, at local and state level, there needs to be a fair bit of responsibility carried for this. Some of the restrictions, for argument's sake, on hazard reduction which a lot of our firefighters were wanting to put in for some time, were bordered on the ridiculous. Some of the things that our firefighters have to do if they want to get a hazard reduction in place are so restrictive that it makes it virtually impossible. And there's too many levels of government involved now and too many people having a say. And honestly, as far as I'm concerned and the feeling of our community is that if our local captains and our group captains say this block needs to be burnt, then it needs to be burnt and nobody else should have a say in that. It is those firefighters that we got asked to go in there and put it out. So surely they should have the final say. I also seem to remember that most of the firefighters are volunteers and that they were even having to take annual leave to go and fight the fires. Is that true? That's, that's absolutely correct. The, the men and women that you see on the back of the trucks, on the end of the hoses, I would say would be 99.9% volunteers. Now, New South Wales Fire and Rescue do a great job in protecting houses and uh, infrastructure if it's on a paved road, but their trucks aren't four-wheel drives. They aren't bushfire vehicles. It is the volunteers that will get into the worst of the flame and their mums and dads, their sons and daughters, their people taking time off work. And I think a lot of a lot of the time we forget how much time our volunteers put in. They don't just turn up for a bushfire. They do motor vehicle accidents. They do house fires in our villages. And they do it all because they love their community. They do it all because they have a, a sense of that Australian thing that we call mateship. And I also remember seeing that something like three billion animals were also killed in this. Did you have any involvement in, I know there were some animal sanctuaries nearby that were also impacted. Like, what was that experience like? Look, there was um, what was known as the Wurrumbira Native Sanctuary. And they were very quickly trying to evacuate animals. I don't believe that any animals in the sanctuary itself were lost. But for some time later, we were still seeing animals burnt on the side of the road. Now, as traumatic it was for those of us to drive past, I've spoken to a number of firefighters who are deeply scarred by the sounds of the animals screaming as the fires ripped through their habitat. You see, if we have a hazard reduction and we have a slow, what they call a slow and controlled burn, the animals will have time to get out of the way. If we have a holocaust like we had, where the fuel on the ground is so great that the fire gets so high that it gets into the treetops and what we call a crowning fire, then there is no hope. It creates its own weather system as it burns. And as we all know, eucalyptus is full of oil. It's highly inflammable. And it just runs from tree to tree in an absolute fireball. 
and there's no chance that anything will escape that. I, as I said, have spoken to a number of firefighters over a number of years, and one of the things that seems to be traumatic for them and a traumatic memory is that loss of defenceless animals, our beautiful koalas, kangaroos, wallabies, echidnas, wombats, all those sorts of animals that um, just simply didn't have a chance. Just getting back to a point that you were making earlier about our volunteers, and it's important to note that at least one of our volunteers uh, at Balmoral lost her home while she was out protecting other people and lost everything when she was out looking after the belongings of others. This is the sort of heroism, stoicism, whatever you like to call it, community-mindedness, selflessness, that these people display to us day in and day out in various situations. Once the fires were contained, did you feel like there was a sense of grief and mourning? Absolutely. Uh, without a doubt, there was, there was a sense of, of um, shock to begin with, and then there was this deep sense of mourning. The community was deeply affected by the loss of two volunteer firefighters who'd come from a fair way away who themselves and their villages and their towns weren't impacted but had come out, as volunteers do, to help us and their lives had been lost in that horrific accident when that burning tree had fallen on their truck. So there was a great loss about that. But then, of course, as the shock subsided a little, the reality of the loss set in and there was definitely a sense of mourning within all of the local villages that had been impacted. There was a sense of that great Australian spirit of helping your mate out, and people did go to great lengths to try and help those who had been affected. But there are some things that nobody can replace. And I I just can't imagine what the trauma of standing there and watching your house, your life's work, your total possessions going up in a fireball to leave you with nothing but ashes. And that happened over and over again here. The community banded together remarkably, as our community does, and I've got to say that. But nevertheless, there was a sense of communal mourning. There was the the mourning of those um, who had lost everything, and there was a mourning by the community. There was a real grief for those who had lost everything in, in, uh, in, in the compassionate sense. I could feel that when we were at the dinner. I could feel the emotion in the room. It felt quite overwhelming. And I know that there was a lady there who had lost her house and maybe she was the volunteer that you were just telling me about. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but wonder, what was it like then in the following months? How did the community start to rebuild and recover? Like, what were the next steps that you had to take? Well, the next steps um, were really a little bit frustrating but necessary in that we did have to have some experts come out. Some of the buildings did have asbestos, and that creates its own problems, as everybody is aware. So there was a process in cleaning that up. There had to be an assessment of trees. Many trees had to be felled because they had been weakened um, severely by the fire. So there there was quite a few weeks where nothing material was taking place. And I think that was probably the hardest part, when people just have to sit there and wait and wait and wait. And then eventually we did have some army help up here, which was terrific, and the guys went through with chainsaws and things. A lot of clearing went on. Uh, A lot of civilian contractors were involved. Eventually things started to be cleaned up, and Integral Energy and Endeavour Energy and all those people 
and they were dragging in concrete power poles, I think, from right across the state. I think we used up everyone that was in mm-hmm. the state of New South Wales at the time. And so new power poles had to be up. And, and people who whose houses had escaped didn't have power. And so, you know, freezers full of food were lost. And all of the little impacts that you don't consider and you think, oh, well, they've escaped the fire, you know, they're fine, but it still had a huge impact. And, of course, during this time, people couldn't get to work, and so there was income that was lost. There was just so many little side effects that I guess you don't think about until you're faced with them and nobody is really prepared for. And, And that's what we saw happening out here. Eventually... The blocks did get cleaned up, the power did get restored, the asbestos got removed, and then people were faced with the horrendous job of making a decision of what to do. Do we stay or do we go? And typical of our community, I think the majority of people stayed, and the process began. And there were squabbles with local councils as far as DA fees and all that sort of thing. Uh, And I just believe that it was a no-brainer. I just believe that our local councils, and I think a couple of them did, but some of them didn't, sort of should have said, look, there will be no fees for DAs to rebuilds for people who've lost their houses. I don't believe that our councils were in a position that they could not waive those fees. There's been compliance issues with people who perhaps haven't dotted the I's and crossed the T's and even now are facing all sorts of hurdles and all sorts of difficulties and all sorts of added stress 18 months on as they're just trying to get their lives back to normal and trying to get things back to normal for their children who, of course, have also been traumatised by having lost everything and the sheer fear of those fireballs as they rip through the villages. Especially for the children, like how have they been able to cope and is there any support for them? Like what about people, you know, the young people's mental health? Has there been nothing from the government? I know there's been a number of agencies that have been out here, have held workshops, have held clinics, have made themselves available. There's been a number of the charitable organisations who've stepped up with counselling services and all that sort of thing, which has been of immense value to the community. I'm not sure that the government really was equipped, prepared, or in any way ready for the size of what happened. I don't think anybody was. But certainly there were some mental health services provided free of charge by a lot of you know, people like Anglicare and Salvos and all those sorts of people who came out front and centre um, to help the community through this. And what about now? So obviously we're, what, a year and a couple of months after it all began What's left to go, like to change? Like, does the community still need a lot of help to recover? Like, my listeners now, if they hear this episode, what can they do to help? Uh, look, it's it's a six million dollar question, and I wish I had a clear cut answer for you. It's been eighteen months since the fires ripped through. We've still got people who are not in their homes. We've got people who are back in their homes but struggling to get re-established and. Just moving into your house doesn't mean you're back where you started. People have lost every tree, every flower, every blade of grass, every fence post, and all that really has to be replaced till we get to some level of normality. To be honest, I think at this point what we really need is more sympathetic government, especially local government. I think that instead of raising difficulties, local government should be providing solutions. 
Unfortunately, I don't think that's always happening. I'm a little bit wary as far as fundraising because we've seen some really well-intentioned people doing that and the money eventually has not got to the people it was intended to get to. And I'd, I'd be very reluctant to sort of go down that road again on a general sense. There has certainly been a lot of, a lot of help and a lot of relief provided in, in regards to the immediate needs of these people. I think what is really required is a sympathetic approach from governments and government agencies. But apart from that, I think one of the biggest helps would be if we could give the people in these communities an assurance that we have learnt from their experience, that we will make sure that those horrific conditions of outrageous, uncontrollable fuel loads on the forest floor and the bush will never be allowed to happen again. If we could guarantee them that we will have the fire trails open and maintained, that we will make sure that the fire breaks are in place, that would go a long way to just assuring people that if we got into a situation, and I'm sure we will, and look, this isn't the first bushfire, and, and contrary to popular belief, these weren't the worst bushfires Australia has seen. They have been actually worse. These were in some ways more ferocious purely because of the fuel load. And, you know, in, in any fire, there's three elements and you have to have appropriate temperature, oxygen and fuel. We obviously can't control the temperature. We certainly can't do without the oxygen because we need that to breathe. So one element that we can <laughs> control is the fuel. And it's like your gas stove. If you turn the burner down, the flame is less intense. If you keep the fuel load in the bush down, the fire is less intense. There will always be bushfires. There always has. And, you know, the, the Aboriginal people have a great record, and it's a proven record, of controlling the bush through the use of fire, of taming it and keeping it maintained. And since we've come, over the last probably 30 to 40 years, I suppose, we've lost that ethos and we've let the bush out of control and it's come back to bite us. We need to keep the bush tamed. We need to keep it disciplined. And if we don't, we're going to see what we've been through happening again. And, and look, my biggest hope and the hope of our firefighters, the hope of the residents who have been through so much is that somebody will listen and learn from the mistakes and neglect I really hope that happens for you guys too, because what I've learned from you is that there is so much more that we can do. Like there's a lot more that we have the control and the power to do. And I also know from meeting you guys that you have such a community spirit. What do you think it is that makes Bargo and Balmoral so special like that? Because you don't get that in Sydney for sure. <laughs> I think a lot of it is... I wouldn't say necessarily born of necessity, but in the city you probably aren't faced with the same challenges. And, um, you know, the old saying is that um, necessity is the mother of invention. In this case, necessity has been the mother of cooperation, of community spirit. I really do believe that Australians generally will always pitch in to help. City people might not face some of the things that we face out here in regard to to bushfires and things, but they would have, I guess, their own community challenges. The thing 
that has brought us together is that we are all very much in the same boat. All of our villages will be impacted at some point or other. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Picton flooded the main township of Wollondilly Shire, where the council chambers are. It flooded badly. And we had RFS and SES and all those guys from all over the place coming in, rescuing people with flood boats and things, taking people off shop awnings. So it doesn't matter whether it's fire or whether it's flood. The community spirit here is one that goes back generations. We have been a community from historically that has had to stand up on its own two feet, has had to rely on itself and on, on each other to survive and to go forward. And we've done that remarkably well. We have the most wonderful bunch of people out here. And look, I was born and raised in the Sydney suburbs. We've, we're only um, newbies. We've only been here nearly 40 years, so, <laughs> so we're not mm. quite locals. Um, <laughs> but, but the thing that we have found is that the community spirit, the care for each other, and not just in time of crisis, it can be in anything, in time of, uh, of sickness, a time of, of just personal loss and tragedy, is this community will come together and look after its own. And when I talk about our own, I don't just mean Bargo looking after Bargo. I mean Bargo looking after Pheasant's Nest or Balmoral or Buxton or Hilltop and vice versa. When we have a crisis down here, we know that we will be receiving help from our local villages. And to be quite honest, our villages do remarkably well what a lot of the time government should. So taking it back to grief, if you know, there are people listening to this episode, they might be going through a certain type of grief themselves, whether it's, you know, the loss of a parent or a house or a career or something that they found so difficult. What do you think is the main thing that can help them get through such a tough time? The main thing to remember is that you are not alone. No matter what you are going through, whether it be the loss of a loved one, the loss of a career, a motor vehicle accident, some other form of trauma you're not going through this on your own there are others who have been through this 